Section seventy one to eighty four of Barclay's Treatise. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Geoffrey Edwards. Section seventy one to eighty four of A Treatise Concerning the Principles of Human Knowledge. Part one by George Barclay. 71. In answer to this, I observe that, as the notion of matter is here stated, the question is no longer concerning the existence of a thing distinct from spirit and idea, from perceiving and being perceived, but whether there are not certain ideas of I know not what sort, in the mind of God, which are so many marks or notes that direct him how to produce sensations in our minds in a constant and regular method, much after the same manner as a musician is directed by the notes of music to produce that harmonious train and composition of sound which is called a tune, though they who hear the music do not perceive the notes, and may be entirely ignorant of them. But this notion of matter seems too extravagant to deserve a confutation. Besides, it is in effect no objection against what we have advanced, viz. that there is no senseless unperceived substance. 72. If we follow the light of reason, we shall, from the constant uniform method of our sensations, collect the goodness and wisdom of the spirit who excites them in our minds. But this is all that I can see reasonably concluded from thence. To me, I say, it is evident that the being of a spirit infinitely wise, good, and powerful, is abundantly sufficient to explain all the appearances of nature. But, as for inert, senseless matter, nothing that I perceive has any the least connection with it, or leads to the thoughts of it. And I would fain see any one explain any of the meanest phenomenon in nature by it, or show any manner of reason, though in the lowest rank of probability, that he can have for its existence, or even make any tolerable sense or meaning of that supposition. For, as to its being an occasion, we have, I think, evidently shown that with regard to us it is no occasion. It remains, therefore, that it must be, if at all, the occasion to God of exciting ideas in us, and what this amounts to we have just now seen. 73. It is worth while to reflect a little on the motives which induced men to suppose the existence of material substance, that so having observed the gradual ceasing and expiration of those motives or reasons, we may proportionably withdraw the assent that was grounded on them. First, therefore, it was thought that color, figure, motion, and the rest of the sensible qualities or accidents did really exist without the mind, and for this reason it seemed needful to suppose some unthinking substratum or substance wherein they did exist, since they could not be conceived to exist by themselves. Afterwards, in process of time, men being convinced that colors, sounds, and the rest of the sensible secondary qualities had no existence without the mind, they stripped this substratum or material substance of those qualities, leaving only the primary ones, figure, motion, and such like, which they still conceived to exist without the mind, and consequently to stand in need of a material support. But, it having been shown that none even of these can possibly exist otherwise than in a spirit or mind which perceives them, it follows that we have no longer any reason to suppose the being of matter. Nay, 
that it is utterly impossible there should be any such thing, so long as that word is taken to denote an unthinking substratum of qualities or accidents wherein they exist without the mind. 74. But though it be allowed by the materialists themselves that matter was thought of only for the sake of supporting accidents, and the reason entirely ceasing, one might expect the mind should naturally, and without any reluctance at all, quit the belief of what was solely grounded thereon. Yet the prejudice is riveted so deeply in our thoughts that we can scarce tell how to part with it, and are therefore inclined, since the thing itself is indefensible, at least to retain the name, which we apply to I know not what abstracted and indefinite notions of being or occasions, though without any show of reason, at least so far as I can see. For what is there on our part, or what do we perceive, amongst all the ideas, sensations, notions which are imprinted on our minds, either by sense of reflection, from whence may be inferred the existence of an inert, thoughtless, unperceived occasion? And on the other hand, on the part of an all-sufficient spirit, what can there be that should make us believe or even suspect he is directed by an inert occasion to excite ideas in our minds? 75. It is a very extraordinary instance of the force of prejudice, and much to be lamented, that the mind of man retains so great a fondness, against all the evidence of reason, for a stupid thoughtless somewhat, by the interposition whereof it would, as it were, screen itself from the providence of God, and remove it farther off from the affairs of the world. But, though we do the utmost we can to secure the belief of matter, though, when reason forsakes us, we endeavour to support our opinion on the bare possibility of the thing, and though we indulge ourselves in the full scope of an imagination not regulated by reason to make out that poor possibility, yet the upshot of all is, that there are certain unknown ideas in the mind of God, for this, if anything, is all that I conceive to be meant by occasions with regard to God, and this at the bottom is no longer contending for the thing, but for the name. 76. Whether, therefore, there are such ideas in the mind of God, and whether they may be called by the name matter, I shall not dispute. But, if you stick to the notion of an unthinking substance, or support of extension, motion, and other sensible qualities, then to me it is most evidently impossible that there should be any such thing, since it is a plain repugnancy that those qualities should exist in, or be supported by, an unperceiving substance. 77. But, say you, though it be granted that there is no thoughtless support of extension, and the other qualities are accidents which we perceive, yet there may perhaps be some inert, unperceiving substance or substratum of some other qualities, as incomprehensible to us as colours are to a man born blind, because we have not a sense adapted to them. But, if we had a new sense, we should possibly no more doubt of their existence than a blind man made to see does of the existence of light and colours. I answer, First, if what you mean by the word matter be only the unknown support of unknown qualities, it is no matter whether there is such a thing or no, since it no way concerns us, and I do not see the advantage there is in disputing about what we know not what, and we know not why. 78. But, secondly, if we had a new sense, it could only furnish us with new ideas or sensations, and then we should have the same reason against their existing in an unperceiving substance that has been already offered with relation to figure, motion, colour, and the like. Qualities, as hath been shown, 
are nothing else but sensations or ideas, which exist only in a mind perceiving them, and this is true not only of the ideas we are acquainted with at present, but likewise of all possible ideas whatsoever. 79. But, you will insist, what if I have no reason to believe the existence of matter? What if I cannot assign any use to it, or explain anything by it, or even conceive what is meant by that word? Yet still it is no contradiction to say that matter exists, and that this matter is in generally substance, or occasion of ideas, though indeed to go about, to unfold the meaning or adhere to any particular explication of those words, may be attended with great difficulties. I answer, when words are used without a meaning, you may put them together as you please, without danger of running into a contradiction. You may say, for example, that twice two is equal to seven, so long as you declare you do not take the words of that proposition in their usual acceptation, but for marks of you know not what, and, by the same reason, you may say there is an inert thoughtless substance without accidents which is the occasion of our ideas, and we shall understand just as much by one proposition as the other. 80. In the last place, you will say, what if we give up the cause of material substance, and stand to it that matter is an unknown somewhat, neither substance nor accident, spirit nor idea, inert, thoughtless, indivisible, immovable, unextended, existing in no place? For, say you, whatever may be urged against substance or occasion, or any other positive or relative notion of matter, hath no place at all, so long as this negative definition of matter is adhered to. I answer, you may if so it shall seem good, use the word matter, in the same sense as other men use nothing, and so make those terms convertible in your style. For, after all, this is what appears to me to be the result of that definition, the parts whereof, when I considered with attention, either collectively or separate from each other. I do not find that there is any kind of effect or impression made on my mind different from what is excited by the term nothing. 81. You will reply, perhaps, that in the foresaid definition is included what doth sufficiently distinguish it for nothing, the positive abstract idea of quiddity, entity, or existence. I own, indeed, that those who pretend to the faculty of framing abstract general ideas do talk as if they had such an idea, which is, say they, the most abstract and general notion of all, that is, to me, the most incomprehensible of all others, that there are a great variety of spirits of different orders and capacities, whose faculties both in number and extent are far exceeding those the author of my being has bestowed on me, I see no reason to deny. And for me to pretend to determine by my own few stinted narrow inlets of perception what ideas the inexhaustible power of the supreme spirit may imprint upon them were certainly the utmost folly and presumption, since there may be, for aught that I know, innumerable sorts of ideas or sensations, as different from one another, and from all that I have perceived, as colours are from sound. But, how ready soever I may be to acknowledge the scantiness of my comprehension with regard to the endless variety of spirits and ideas that may possibly exist, yet for any one to pretend to a notion of entity or existence, abstracted from spirit and idea, from perceived and being perceived, is, I suspect, a downright repugnancy, and trifling with words. It remains that we consider the objections which may possibly be made on the part of religion. 82. Some there are who think that, 
though the arguments for the real existence of bodies which are drawn from reason be allowed not to amount to demonstration, yet the holy scriptures are so clear in the point as will sufficiently convince any good Christian that bodies do really exist, and are something more than mere ideas, there being in holy writ innumerable facts related which evidently supposed the reality of timber and stone, mountains and rivers, and, and cities, and human bodies, to which I answer that no sort of writings whatsoever, sacred or profane, which use those and the like words in the vulgar acceptation, or so as to have a meaning in them, are in danger of having their truth called in question by our doctrine, that all those things do really exist, that there are bodies, even corporeal substances, when taken in the vulgar sense, have been shown to be agreeable to our principles, and the difference betwixt things and ideas, realities and chimeras, has been distinctly explained. See sections 29, 30, 33, 36, and C. And I do not think that either what philosophers call matter, or the existence of objects without the mind, is anywhere mentioned in scripture. 83. Again, whether there can be or be not external things, it is agreed on all hands that the proper use of words is the marking our conceptions, or things only as they are known and perceived by us, whence it plainly follows that in the tenets we have laid down there is nothing inconsistent with the right use and significancy of language, and that discourse of what kind soever, so far as it is intelligible, remains undisturbed. But all this seems so manifest, from what has been largely set forth in the premises, that it is needless to insist any further on it. 84. But it will be urged that miracles do, at least, lose much of their stress and import by our principles. What must we think of Moses' rod? Was it not really turned into a serpent, or was there only a change of ideas in the minds of the spectators? And can it be supposed that our Saviour did no more at the marriage feast in Cana than impose on the sight and smell and taste of the guests, so as to create in them the appearance or idea only of wine? The same may be said of all other miracles, which, in consequence of the foregoing principles, must be looked upon only as so many cheats, or illusions of fancy. To this I reply, that the rod was changed into a real serpent, and the water into real wine. That this does not in the least contradict what I have elsewhere said will be evident from sections 34 and 35. But this business of real and imaginary has been already so plainly and fully explained, and so often referred to, and the difficulties about it are so easily answered from what has gone before, that it were an affront to the reader's understanding to resume the explication of it in the, its place. I shall only observe that if at table all who were present should see, and smell, and taste, and drink wine, and find the effects of it, with me there could be no doubt of its reality, so that at bottom the scruple concerning real miracles has no place at all on ours, but only on the received principles, and consequently makes rather for than against what has been said. End of section 71 to 84 Recording by Jeffrey Edwards